as we return to the book of Luke to continue in our series. We are still in chapter 16. That's where we were last week. We're continuing here. And as we have been working through this, we're in the middle of uh, really one big conversation that Jesus is having. And as we see this laid out in Luke, uh, Luke's not necessarily trying to put this together chronologically. He's not uh, trying to tell a story as much as he is trying to establish the foundation of our faith and the veracity of it. So uh, it's entirely possible that Luke, in drawing this together, is pulling pieces from other, uh, from other conversations and putting them together as one. In any case, God has inspired him to do just that. So all of the thoughts that are here are focused on a theme. As we get into this today, uh, we're going to see that there's a, a little bit of a, uh, an unfortunate break in your NIV text. If you're reading in the, the NIV, one of our pew Bibles or what we have here, you do definitely want to have a copy of the Bible in your hand. Uh, you can do that electronically. Our Wi-Fi information is in the uh, program for you. The, the hard copies that are there you can use, but what you really want more than to have a Bible to read this morning is to have a Bible of your own that is yours, that you understand readily, that you can read well, that you can write in and wear it out because God gives this to you to understand, which means you need to see it, you need to handle it, you need to use it, you need to study it. In fact, as we look at this passage today, it can seem like this is about money, and it kind of is, but not really. It can seem like it's about heaven and hell, and it kind of is, but not really. This passage today, as we'll see, is primarily about the authority and sufficiency of God's Word, His eternal, unchanging Word. So as I read the text for you to start, I want to plant this seed in your mind that our core reality here is that the gospel offers grace, not shortcuts. All right, let's read the text together, and I believe that this will become clear to you as we work through. We're going to back up. We went through chapter or through verse uh, 15 last week, but rather than start with verse 16, we're going to back up to verse 14 again because it really leads directly into this. Starting with verse 14, the Pharisees who loved money heard all this, all that Jesus had been saying prior to this, and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. It's easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Anyone who divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery, and the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate, was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So so he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. 
Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, they don't listen to Moses and the prophets. They won't be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. Your divinely inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative word that reveals to us your heart and your character. Lord, we thank you that your word does not change because you don't change. You are the same. Even in all of the things that swirl around us and all of the the various controversies and the cultural shifts and the moral revolution, Lord, you remain the same. With all of the teachers who come along to tell us that there's an easier path, you remain the same. And yet, Father, when we recognize that, it is frightening to us. It is frightening to recognize that you, as you always have, demand holiness. Perfection, but not mere perfection, not simply the keeping of rules, perfection of the heart, without flaw, just as you created us to be, just as you are yourself. We know that we cannot do that. So Father, as we thank you for your law, for your precepts, for the goodness the trustworthiness of your word. Father, we thank you so much for the gospel, for the good news that Jesus came to save us. Father, I pray now, in this moment, as we open your word together, that you would speak beyond my frailty, that your servant would be lost, that your message would remain. Father, strip away from us anything that would distract us, all the concerns and cares of this life. Take away anything that would deceive us, the voice of the enemy seeking to keep us off track, to cause us to wrongly understand what you clearly teach us in your word. Father, show us that the, the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the Help us to recognize your good, pleasing, and perfect will that we choose to submit to you. Pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. The gospel offers grace, not shortcuts. As we get into the text, I will say, I'll try really hard not to spit in the microphone. Uh, I will say that this is in a section that is filled with things that I've struggled with over the years. Now, the, the three parables that we see in Luke 15 are familiar. Lost sheep, lost coin, lost son. We've all heard that. Even if you didn't spend any time in church, you heard about the prodigal son and killing the fatted calf. I just saw that on Happy Days last night, actually. Uh, anybody remember Happy Days? The older I get, the more dated my references become. But anyway, as we, are, as we are looking at this, those things are easy because we've seen them a lot of times. Sometimes we might miss the point, but it's not because we're not familiar with them. Some of the rest of this section, we don't talk about as much. Maybe we haven't heard preaching on it. Maybe you haven't gone to church and heard preaching on it, or maybe you have and it didn't get taught. It's really important for us to recognize that God gave us his word not to give us some mystical trick, not to give us some fancy code that if we can just find that key, we'll be able to break it down. That was a really big thing a number of years ago to find the, the mystical key to God's numeric code. And if you count the letters and you get the right formula, you'll find all the mysteries revealed. That is a lie from the devil. 
God didn't give you his word for a puzzle. It's not some kind of, of cosmic escape room. What it actually is, Dennis, we're going to mute this for just a sec. What it actually is instead is God revealing his heart and his character to us. He wants us to know him. Think about that for just a moment. Think about the fact that the creator of the universe, the ultimate reality, the uncaused cause, the prime mover, actually knows you personally and wants you to know him personally. That's mind-blowing. We can't fully grasp him, and yet he reveals himself to us so that we can. And one day, if we will trust what he tells us now, if we will embrace his eternal word and submit our hearts to it, that we'll see as we go that that is a tough thing. The understanding is less difficult than the submitting. If we will do that, we will see him face to face. And then we will know him fully, even as we are fully known. What a mind-blowing concept. God wants you to know him intimately. So as we work through this, we're going to see that, that this is part of, of a concept that starts building actually back in chapter 14. And as we work through it, when I'm... I'm you know I'm tempted to go back and read it to you, but we're not going to do that. Let me just, <laughs> let me explain. No, it's too much. Let me sum up. Um, as we do this, three of you got that reference. Um, as we do this, we're going to see that it's a continuation of that. In chapter 14, Jesus begins a focus on aligning our values and priorities with God's values and priorities. Everything that we see from that point on, he is teaching this idea that we need to stop aligning ourselves with the values of the world. We need to stop relying on the understanding of our own human nature, our own flesh. You know, God can't be that way because I don't get it. That doesn't make sense to me. My God wouldn't act that way. The God I believe in wouldn't do that. Here's what I believe. Who cares what you believe? Every time you try to shape God into what makes sense to you, you are developing an idol and you are not worshiping the God who is. You're worshiping the God you want. Good luck with that. That ends up in Hades. So as we see this rolling out in, in uh, chapter 14, he starts by telling the Pharisees, he's uh, having dinner and he tells the Pharisees uh, how they missed God's compassion in their view of the Sabbath. We see that in chapter 14, the first six verses or so. And he calls them on, on their, can I say self-promotion? Their selfishness, their uh, desire to, to have the best positions. So he sees the guests at this Pharisee's house where he's having dinner, trying to get the best seats, the seats of honor. And, you know, it reminds me of, you know, kids trying to get the best seat in the living room. You know, we want to be in, in the best spot. Let me sit closest to the host. Let me sit closest to the guest of honor because then I have the best seat and I look better and I have more prestige. So he calls them down on that. And he points out to them in this that their self-promotion misses the value of humility. So they've missed out on the value of compassion. They missed out on the value of humility. We see that in, in verses 7 to 14. Then he goes on to point out that they not only missed that, they missed the value of heaven. Not everybody talks about heaven, but while we might talk about it, we might, you know, throw it out there as something we look forward to. It's sort of that pie in the sky, by and by concept. And he's saying, you're, you're missing out on what is real, the real actual value here. And they're missing out on that value by being caught up with the here and now just like us. See that in the, in the later portions of chapter 14, verses 15 to 24. And he tells the crowd that's gathering there that they need to value him above everything because following him, if we're going to follow Jesus, it will cost everything. He makes that very clear in verses 25 to 32. He emphasizes it. He kind of puts a, an exclamation point on it, highlights it, underlines it, by pointing out to them that 
that anybody who fails to fulfill their kingdom purpose, these Pharisees were supposed to be the leaders, they weren't doing their job. For you and I, if God has called us to himself and we claim to follow Christ, but we're not doing what he's called us to do, we're not fulfilling our kingdom purpose, we're choosing our own agenda instead of following the master's agenda, then what he says about that is that you're actually worthless. When you're worthless because you're not fulfilling your purpose, just like worn out Saul, you get eliminated. Jesus then shares the value that God puts on lost people with those three familiar parables in chapter 15. He turns to his disciples after that and he describes the connection between purposeful living on earth and eternal reward. His followers need to make the most of every current opportunity we have. We're told elsewhere in scripture to redeem the time, to make the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. And our job then as Christ followers is to make the most of our current opportunity to prepare for the future. And that future is God's kingdom. That future is eternity. It goes beyond preparing for next week, my five-year plan, getting ready for retirement. It's bigger than that. It's never ending. Then he rebukes the greedy values of the Pharisees as we, uh, as we saw here in chapter 16. He rebukes the greedy values of the Pharisees and their externalism. As the Pharisees want the good life, their version of that means wealth and prestige and reputation. They want the good life now, the best life now. The same way everyone wants the kingdom of God on their own terms. But he clarifies by saying that the eternal word of God, the eternal law of God, remains unchanged. Then he gives this parable about uh, the rich man and Lazarus. And if we see that context build, if we see how this plays out, and we follow the structure, some of you on Wednesday nights have been working through our Dig and Discover principles, so we see the context the, the overall general setting, we see how this flows as Jesus is not just rebuking the Pharisees, but he's rebuking them in a direction. He's saying, you're, you're missing this. You're valuing things here. And in the process, you're actually short-circuiting the law. But you don't get to do that. You're mad because people aren't doing it your way, but you're really all trying to do the same thing. All of the Gentiles, all the, the lost people, all the, the dregs of society as the Pharisees would have seen them, they're all coming because they want the gospel. They're pressing in, another translation renders it. They're forcing their way in. I've got to get more of this. That's why the crowds keep following Jesus. The thing about the crowds is they keep getting thinned out. Because we want God on our terms, and God is only available on his terms. The Pharisees were very, very good at keeping rules. They were so good at keeping rules, they made up more rules so that they could have more rules to keep. Now, they justified that in their minds long before this particular sect started. This has been going on, and it continues to today. We do this in churches all the time. If going to be a Christian, you need to do X, Y, and Z. And you need to never do P, D, and Q. You know, we got we to gotta keep on moving through my list of rules that I don't get from the scripture. I get from my religious tradition. The Pharisees were great at that. And they would justify it. If we keep the rules, then I don't mess up on the law. Eve said that same thing to the serpent didn't say that we couldn't eat from any tree, so we can't eat from that tree or even touch it. But God didn't say that. Now, it might be a good plan not to touch it, but that's not what God said. And it ended up getting her in trouble because she wasn't following what God said. She was following what she said. And when what she said didn't make sense because the serpent was tricky and fooled her, she got sucked in found an easier way. God's way was hard. 
She wanted an easier way. You know, that's what religion does all the time. That's what legalism does. It seems like it's making it tougher because you got all the you know, do's and don'ts and you got to check this off and you got to go to a certain class to learn a certain way. You have to have approved behaviors and, and all that kind of stuff. But what it actually does is it makes everything surface. It makes it external. If I hit my checklist, then I know. Relationships are much harder than checklists. Amen. How many of you are married? Raise your hand if you're married. How many of you have had a friend that you have had for more than 15 years? Close friend, not just acquaintance, a close friend, more than 15 years. Okay, how many of you have at least one sibling that you grew up with in the same house? Do you ever fight with any of those people? Ever fight with a sibling? Ever have conflict with a close friend that you've had for more than 15 years? Now, I know you married people have never had fights, right? That doesn't happen. Come on. Here's why. I can check everything off my list in that relationship, and it still can go awry. It's not meant to be a checklist. I remember distinctly so many times that I used all the skills that I learned in communications and all the skills I learned in marriage classes and training to try to fix a fight with my wife. And it only dug the hole deeper because she knew that I was using external skills essentially to work the situation. Now, I may have been sorry, but using the jargon to get myself fixed or to get the situation fixed was checking off a list when what I needed was a relationship. This is the nature of what God has always called us to. We were created, every single one of us, created for the express purpose, the purpose. It's not a purpose. It is the purpose for you to be on the planet right now, to have an intimate, pure, unadulterated, uninterrupted relationship with God, to know God and enjoy Him forever. This is why you're here. So when we get anything else in the way, it wrecks that. What part of relationship feels good when it's a checklist? How many husbands, let me talk to husbands now because we so often mess this up. We're kind of dumb. So husbands, how many of us have bought into the lie from Hallmark and Sherry's Berries and whoever else, that if we get the right flowers, we call 1-800-Flowers, or we get that pajama gram or whatever else they're trying to sell us, that will make her feel the way you want her to feel. She's going to feel valued. She's going to think you're awesome. And how often have our wives said, you know, I'd really rather have you help me with the dishes. I'd really rather have you care about me and value me and quit trying to do a checklist on a holiday when you haven't done it the 364 other days. I see a lot of wives looking at husbands right now. Guys, do those things, but don't do them because it's a checklist. Do them because this is your heart and you spent 364 days building up to that moment because she matters to you. You see how this might relate to how God views us? He's not interested in what the Pharisees were doing. Let's have more rules, let's check it off, so we do all the right things, we've met all, all our religious obligations, and therefore God will be pleased because we did what we were obliged to do. God's not any more interested in that than anybody else. Nobody wants to be a project least of all, the God of all creation. So he says here, as he's been saying through this, you need to value what I value. You need to prioritize what I prioritize. I am God. You're created for my purpose. And when you're on board with that, it's going to look a whole lot different than when you're doing your own thing, which from the very beginning is the definition of sin. 
doing my thing instead of God's thing. So we see in this text that Jesus is, is talking to these Pharisees. He's, uh, he's given this uh, parable about the, the crooked manager that we saw last week. And, and his point there was that we need to use the resources that God gives us to build his kingdom. That's what they're given for. There's an eternal purpose. There's a future that we need to be working toward. And the Pharisees in verse 14 are sneering at Jesus. They're turning their nose up at him, literally. And he says in verse 15, this rebuke, you're really good at looking good on the outside. You're really good at making other people think you've got it together and you're whole. But you're not fooling God because he knows your hearts. He says the things that we prize, the things that we value highly, are not the things that God values highly. In the message, it renders it, so I'm going to paraphrase the paraphrase, as the message says something along this, the things that we humans look at and see as monumental or momentous, God sees through and sees as monstrosity. The wealth that he gave you to use to build his kingdom resources that he gave you to use in his service, when you use it to serve yourself, it becomes no longer a tool, but an idol. It becomes something that God detests, even though he's the one who loved you and it enough to give it to you. But you corrupted it, you perverted it, and turned it into an idol. That's what he's saying to the Pharisees. And he continues that thought by pointing out to them that they, their whole value system, everything that they based it on, has then been flawed. They've missed out on what God said. Before I get to, to what Jesus is saying in 16, let me just make sure that we see this. The Pharisees, one of their big gripes with Jesus was that he was bringing a different understanding of the Old Testament scriptures. That was all the scriptures at the time. They, the New Testament hadn't been written yet. So as, as Jesus is living out his life and preaching what he's preaching, they see him as in violation of the Old Testament. Why? Because they're reading the Old Testament through the lens of their own opinions and framework. They've made their rules, then they read the, the scriptures through the lens of their rules, and it distorted their understanding. If they had actually submitted themselves to what the scriptures said, they would have recognized Jesus. He makes that point over and over again, and, and probably the most clear is on the road to Emmaus, after his resurrection, when Jesus is making an appearance among people after he's risen from the dead. And he's walking with two disciples who are unnamed down the road toward a town called Emmaus. And Jesus, as he's doing this, starts at the beginning of the book and works his way through all the scriptures to point out how all of it was about him. All the scriptures pointed to Jesus. If the Pharisees had just surrendered themselves to God's word instead of to their framework to make God's word say what they want, then they would have found Jesus in the first place. So with that, let's pick up with 15 and read into 16. You're the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached, and everyone is forcing their way into it. It's easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. And then he gives the example of this. So you're manipulating. They come up with a lot of rules of divorce. This isn't the only place, and it's not the only place Jesus talks about divorce. But he's giving an example to support his point. The law doesn't change. Therefore, for example, if anybody dis uh, divorces their wife, and the implication here is unjustified by Scripture. Elsewhere, he tells us what those caveats are. But... If you're looking to justify your sin, to justify your lust by getting rid of your wife and giving her a certificate of divorce, and you say, well, I kept the letter of the law, 
you've missed the point of the law. Jesus rebukes divorce out of hand. God hates divorce. And obviously we know that we've got a lot of divorce here, right here in this room. We know that. Largely because for generations, we have not learned that God's word doesn't change. Jesus says, look, if you are trying to justify yourself by using the law, using divorce as this example, you are still sinning. If you do this, you're committing adultery. It doesn't matter how you spin it legally, you're committing adultery. And if you get a woman that, that was already married, she was uh, divorced from her husband, it doesn't matter how you spin the law, you're still committing adultery. His entire point is not about divorce. His entire point is about the law, but the law doesn't change. Then he goes on to illustrate it with this parable. Now, uh, some folks believe, uh, J. Vernon McGee is one, and many other uh, scholars believe that this is not strictly speaking a parable, that this is a, not a fictitious thing that Jesus made up to make a point, but it's Jesus drawing from or recounting actual events that happened in heaven. I have no idea. It doesn't matter because the point is the same. Whether he's drawing from something biographical, whether Lazarus is an actual dude, it's not the same Lazarus that he raises from the dead later. Same name, not the same guy. Because this is the only time he uses an actual name, which means God is my help. So it makes sense that it would fit for the parable. Whether it's an actual fictional story that he's making up for his point or he's drawing from it, the point remains. And he's using it for the express purpose that he always uses parables for. So as he's going through this, he talks about this rich man. This rich man is dressed in purple. He's got a good life. Lazarus has a bad life. And he, he uses terms that would have particularly uh, disgusted the Pharisees. He's a beggar. They have no respect for that. They actually saw wealth as a, a, a reward and reflection of godliness. And Jesus isn't condemning the rich man for being rich. And he's not commending the poor man for being poor. He's talking about the values that we place on these things. The rich man isn't in Hades because he had money. He's in Hades because he was a sinner. He was in Hades because he valued his priorities over God's. Then they both die. The poor man is in Abraham's bosom. That's a, a euphemistic uh, way of saying it in paradise, uh, common at the time. Uh, if you have a King James Bible where it says Hades, it may render it hell. Uh, that concept of hell actually doesn't come up until Revelation. This Hades is a more general term that the Greeks used, that Jesus is using as well uh, for the place of the dead that can uh, refer to both those in torment and those in paradise. So if you have an NIV or a newer translation, it probably says Hades. The King James says hell in there. But in any case, this wealthy man is in torment. And it's troubling him. And now that he's lived his life and he's gotten his way and he's done his things, life has been good. Now he has the rest of eternity to wish he had reversed his priorities. He's wishing that this could be better. C.S. Lewis told the story of, uh, of finding a gravestone that says, uh, <laughs> here lies an atheist, all dressed up and no place to go. And he goes on to say, you know, that atheist probably wishes that were true. The reality is when we leave this planet, if we are not with the Lord because we belong to him here, then we are in torment and it's eternal. Notice in this parable, there is a vast chasm, a vast gulf between the two and no one can cross. You don't get to make that decision over again later. That's taught by some uh, Protestant denominations falsely. And it's taught by the Mormon church that there are various levels and you can uh, ascend through that. That's false. Once you leave the planet, the decision has been made. There's no redos, no mulligans. A lot of us want to have some kind of a special experience. We want to hear God's voice. We want to see some big display. Jesus says, no, that's not going to work. In this parable, Father Abraham says to the rich man, look, 
they had the law and the prophets. They had the Old Testament. They had the scriptures. They didn't respond. If they're not going to listen to, te- to, the, to the Bible itself, to the text of the scriptures, they're not going to leave. Li- they're not going to listen even if somebody comes back from the dead. Pretty clear allusion to what will happen, this foreshadowing of Jesus returning from the dead. Those who would reject him also would reject him after his resurrection. So much of what we're dealing with is not about evidence. It's about our hearts. It's moral, not intellectual. It has to do with our volition, our will, our decision to surrender to God much more than it has to do with our ability to understand God. Most of the time when we don't believe, it's not for lack of evidence, it's for lack of submission. With that, let's crush through these uh, points in your program. As we look at that in context and we see how it builds out, that key verse that we look at that has always been difficult for me to understand in the past until I begin to look at this whole package. We see it in in, uh, verse 16. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached. And everyone is forcing their way into it, taking it by force, pressing into it. It's a a picture of the crowds that have come around Jesus. The Pharisees, like so many in the crowds, so many of us, are looking for shortcuts, looking for an easier way. The law was hard, it was heavy, it was burdensome. Hey, John's proclaiming this Jesus guy. And Jesus is saying things about grace. He's He's going beyond these laws that we had to carry out. Maybe it's easier. Here's our first point. The gospel doesn't make it easier to be right with God. It makes it possible. The gospel doesn't make it easier to be right with God. It makes it possible. Jesus says here, as he says elsewhere, there is no changing to God's word. Matthew 24 Jesus says the same thing. Not one little tiny piece of the law will pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away. All that you know as existence will pass away before the law changes. So woe to you if you teach people that they don't have to keep the law. If you teach them that there are no rules, like it's a Little Caesars commercial. There's no scenario where God condones that. This is really important for us to recognize right now in Protestant evangelical world because we've kind of had that backlash. We want to go so far away from the Pharisees' rules that we act as if there aren't any. God loves everybody. God just wants me to be happy. If this is the way I was made, shouldn't I be able to just go with it? Doesn't God just give grace? Doesn't he just overlook these things? And Jesus says emphatically, No, he does not. There is no change to God's eternal word. Even when everyone around us changes, when the logic changes and it doesn't fit the culture, God's word doesn't change. When my understanding changes and I'm too cool for school, I think that I know better than God does, God's word does not change. And it doesn't matter if you're talking about the hot topic of the day, whatever is showing up in the news, or you're talking about your own personal sin that we tend to justify, because we do, don't we? We can overlook, you know, I I know I wasn't quite truthful there, but I had good reason. I had good reason to be deceitful. I know I wasn't nice to her in what I said, but she had it coming. We justify. But what's wrong is wrong eternally the gospel doesn't make it easier to be right with god it makes it possible you see if all of us have to keep all of the law that applies the jewish law that was only for jews only applied to jews but god's universal and moral law applied to everyone not just the nation of israel it applied to everyone and it still does today everything that god said in leviticus that was outside of just the the ceremonial pieces, all of that still applies. 
truthfully, even the ceremonial pieces really do. If you don't have Jesus, you got to get to God somehow. That's a prescribed way. The only reason that we don't keep that now is because it has been kept for us. Therefore, if I am not in Christ, if I have not received Jesus and made him my master, my boss, he is calling the shots. And I'm trusting in what he did on the cross in his death and resurrection to take away my sin because he keeps the law for me. Then I'm stuck having to keep all of the law myself. And I can't. If you're trying to get to God through religion, you are destined to fail. There is no way. That's why in John chapter 14, the Lord says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's why Paul writes to the Roman church, everyone has sinned and falls short of the glory of God because the law still. It doesn't make it easier. God's standard isn't lower. He's still called us to holiness. It makes it possible. Because until Christ, when I have to do enough to impress God, let that sink in, when I have to do enough to impress God, I am doomed. Let me restate that in a very churchy, old King Jamesy kind of way. I am very literally damned. There is no hope, zero hope at all if I have to keep the law. But Jesus doesn't take away the law. He fulfills it. So that all of us who will receive him, John 1, 12 says, anyone who receives him, he gives the right to become God's child. Now, I've trumped that law, and I live by a higher law. But we'll press on and see if we can see that as we go. The gospel doesn't make it easier to be right with God. It makes it possible. We see that, they, uh, that they're pressing into the kingdom. They're pursuing this. They want something. Jesus sees a contrast here. We want something easier. And he's saying, now it's easier for all of creation to fall away than for one little part of the law to fall away. And he gives this example. Anyone who divorces his wife commits adultery, marries a divorced woman, commits adultery. His point is that God values what he has always valued. God values what he has always valued. That's our, our next point. God values what he has always valued. When God put together human beings in marriage, the design that he gave it was for his eternal purposes. It was important to God to create male and female. God created them male and female. That's how they bore his image, as male, as female. And he created them to be married, one male, one female, for life. That's the picture, because God is teaching through that. Paul clarifies it in Ephesians 5. We see it throughout the Old Testament, but it becomes clear when Paul says in Ephesians 5 that the wife and the husband have roles to play as if this is a divine drama being played out on a stage to play the role of God's people and the role of Christ so that we can demonstrate through marriage, family, and sexuality how God interacts with his people. If we get that wrong, we're throwing away God's values and priorities. God values what he has always valued. What was sin then is sin now. He has not changed his mind. If it was wrong for you to smoke dope before a law was passed to change it, changing the law doesn't change whether it's right or wrong. If it was wrong for you to, uh, to divorce your, your spouse, before somebody came up with a no-fault rule about it, it's still wrong. That doesn't change God's values. What he has valued in the past, he values today. God values what he has always valued. Let's see this next piece. God's word is greater 
than any personal experience. God's word is greater than any personal experience. If God offers us grace, not shortcuts, he's not taking away from the law, he's not making it easier, not lowering the standard. Boy, we're big on lowering the standards. There's a uh, school in the news recently that the school district did away with valedictorian and salutatorian. We don't, we don't want to have merit-based things. It's unhealthy competition. It's not the competition that's unhealthy. It's the handling of the competition that's unhealthy. It's us that's unhealthy. But we're really good at lowering standards. God doesn't do that. He has not at any point said, you know, I was a little too tough on those guys back in Eden, so we're going to open the door a little bit wider. We're just going to let everybody in. That's universalism. It's heresy. What God does say is, yes, my standard is perfection, and it never changes. But I love you so much that I'm sending my son to take your place so that he can be the fulfillment that the law, the righteous requirements might be fully met in us who belong to him. He does the doing. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, in Christ, if I'm in Christ, I keep in that, I keep all the law because he keeps all the law and I'm in him. It's no longer about me being able to. That grace is not a shortcut. And we need to recognize that the word that he gives us is bigger than my feelings. It's bigger than my story. It's bigger than any postmodern concept of my truth. God's word stands eternal. It stands firm. It is established. God's truth is given in his word and not primarily through special experiences. This is a particular malady in our, in our age, in the modern and postmodern age. We don't want doctrine. We want experience. We want good feelings. We want to go back to marriage we want to get married because we're in love sounds great makes for great commercials great disney movies that's wonderful but it doesn't make for real life because while i may be in love on saturday by monday night forget about it what happened to your breath can't do it anymore you keep leaving your underwear on the floor can't do it anymore guys we need something bigger. We need something stronger. We need a foundation. I was just explaining to my daughter the other day. I did not, or maybe it was my son. It's one of my brilliant children. I was just explaining, I did not marry your mother because she was beautiful. I dated her for that. <laughs> Real good, you know what I'm saying? I didn't marry her because she can cook. I love her cooking because I love to eat. I married her for her character something bigger, something more solid and stable and lasting. The first time we had dinner together and I saw her, how she handled her parents, how she interacted with her parents, I knew this was a woman of substance, of character that I could marry. She's not with me today and that's very sad to me, so I'm talking about her a little more. But the reality of this is that being in love is not a good enough reason. Being in love with Jesus is not discipleship. It's a wonderful experience. And when we have right doctrine, when we understand the scriptures and we dig deep into the scriptures and we find out who he really is and we understand what he really wants from us and the provision that he has made that God is both just, the standard doesn't move, and the justifier, he meets it for us. How can we not fall in love with him? But if we just fall in love with an experience, when the experience fades, 
when we don't remember that moment of hearing his voice, that moment of seeing him move. We are in the, the deep recesses of depression or fear or anger, and we don't know why God isn't answering. And we stumble. That's when we lose faith. Because we put our faith in this experience rather than in the profound truth that never changes in God's word. Notice what happens in this in this parable, as we go through all of the, the you know, rich man and speaking to Abraham and all this kind of stuff, I'm in torment, we get to the crux of it at the bottom, at the end of the passage. When Abraham says to him, <clears throat> excuse me, you can't get there from here, you can't separate, I mean, you, you were separated, you can't get together. He said, I beg you to send Lazarus to my family. I got five brothers. I don't want them to be here. I want to see them saved. It's interesting that the man probably never prayed in his life. Now that he's in Hades, he starts to pray. Too late. Abraham replies in verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. They don't need somebody to come back and tell them. They need to see what has already been provided. No, Father Abraham. Great prayer, by the way. Please do this. No, do it my way. We do that sometimes. No, Father Abraham, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Abraham says, no, they won't. They don't listen to the law, to Moses and the prophets. They're not going to be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. This is, has more to do with authority than evidence. Hmm. God's truth is given in his word, not primarily through special experiences. Entering God's kingdom is more of a matter of submission than it is of evidence and understanding. Truth is objective and it remains true whether we do anything about it or not, it does not change. It's not about what I choose to believe, what's true. This entire passage from 14 to 16, and we're gonna be moving forward into 17 next week, as we go through all of this, Jesus is focused in on we need to align ourselves with God. We need to get our mind aligned with his mind. So I'm thinking the thoughts that I can see are true, not that seem to be true or feel true. I am valuing what God values. I'm prioritizing what God prioritizes. I'm understanding that I don't get to make the rules. There is no shortcut. There's no easier way. There's no cheap grace. There's no hey, you know, I'm saved, so whatever, all bets are off. I'm going to do whatever I want. Party on, dude. That's where you are in your heart. Then you are not, let me say again, not saved. You've missed it. You need the truth that doesn't change in God's word. And if you're relying on any other experience to guide you, you are offending God. No horoscopes, no mediums. God condemns that all throughout the scripture for the same very reason. If you're counting on some ecstatic experience to confirm that you are saved, you've missed it. You don't understand. If you're waiting for God to send someone from the dead to tell you, he already did. And if you're not willing to listen to what's in the word, you wouldn't listen if an angel came to your face. The gospel is bigger. God's word is greater than any personal experience. How's this work? God's universal moral law is binding on all of creation. It's eternal. The standard is not lower, but Jesus has fully met all the requirements of the law for us. The gospel offers grace, not shortcuts. One last passage, and we'll wrap this up. Let's turn, <clears throat> excuse me, to 1 Peter. If you're not sure where 1 Peter is, if you're in Luke, go to the right. Most of the way to the back, if you get to Revelation, you went too far. The books get kind of skinny after Hebrews. So all those little skinny books, you're in the right place. 
directly after the book of James is 1 Peter. When you get to 1 Peter, we're going to pick up with verse 13 and read through. God's standard is not lower. Jesus has fully met all the requirements of the law for us. God's not offering us shortcuts. He's not offering us an easier road. He values what he is, has always valued, and his word is eternal. Check this out. Peter writes, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. As obedient children... Do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy as I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, stop for a minute, that should scare you to death. It's not that you're going to get all the, the breaks. God's going to see it and see that you did better you know, you tried really hard, you did your best. God views your works impartially, and if they fall short of his standard, you fail. There is no grade, it's pass-fail. Heaven or hell, based on your works impartially, and you can't make it. That should scare you. But the grace of God in Jesus Christ takes us past that. Back to the text. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors. God doesn't value what people value. It's not about that, not about silver and gold. Verse 19, you weren't redeemed with that. No, no but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but he was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him, and so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you've purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have sincere love for, for each other, Love one another deeply from the heart, for you have been born again. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Our hope in the gospel hinges on the fact that it is part of God's eternal word. It's not undoing the past. God is unchanging. Therefore, his law is unchanging. And the gospel has been there from the beginning. God's plan from before the foundations of the earth were laid for us to be saved because we couldn't save ourselves. As you contemplate Luke 16, as you go through your week today, it's my prayer that the songs that we sing will echo in your mind and remind you of these truths. That you will take hold of this, <clears throat> excuse me, that you'll take hold of this core reality that the gospel offers grace, grace, unearned favor not shortcuts let's pray together <clears throat> Father in heaven uh, pray that as we leave this place today that each individual every single person would have had an encounter with you personally. As we are gathered together as a family, Father, I pray that our hearts to a person will be touched by your spirit. 
Lord, I know that every time we get together, there are people here who are not in that saving relationship with you through Jesus. I pray that each person here hearing my voice will receive the grace of God by choosing to trust Christ's word on their behalf. Lord, speak to our hearts. We know that we don't have to understand all the details, but we do have to surrender. Make us, make us pliable to you. Take out our stone hearts and give us hearts of flesh that respond to your word. Father, we thank you for your word that endures forever. Praise in Christ's name.